This is the second Sunday of Advent, and we always are introduced in the second Sunday of Advent to our old friend, John, don't sing jingle bells to me, the Baptist. (laughs) When I was in St. Michael's in Tucson, where I began my ministry, We had a chapel, a side chapel, that was dedicated to John the Baptist, and Father Fowler had found this statue about this big uh, from in Mexico. It was a beauty of John the Baptist with his skins and, you know, all this on. So when he would preach uh, in Advent, he would often point to the statue of John the Baptist and say, try singing Jingle Bells of that guy. So what I want to preach about are two or three themes. Last, last week we talked about the readings, the first Sunday of Advent being about the coming of the new age. And now we begin the movement towards uh, the anticipation of the incarnation, which is a word that preachers use all the time and assume that everybody knows what it means. And so I'm going to say a little something about the incarnation and why we use it, uh, particularly in the Anglican tradition. And uh, then to say some things about John the Baptist, why he's always here on the second Sunday, and what he's pointing to, and two main issues in this Sunday's reading from the Gospel of Matthew uh, is repentance and God's judgment and how we understand the issue of God's judgment. Uh, The Episcopal Church, in most Episcopalian circles, are not, uh, don't uh, sit heavily on the issue of God's judgment. Uh, Some may wish that we did, but we need to say a little something about the judgment of God and how we understand that and use as support for this both the biblical witness and the tradition of the church of the first five centuries who understood God's redemptive work in a far more nuanced fashion than certain forms of Christianity do. So we need to say a word about that. Uh, And then at the end, I'm going to give you a little method that I've done a number of times before that I do every day to think about how repentance... Uh, fits into this on a daily basis and this meaning and uh, a a spiritual way of um, centering that in your daily daily life. Uh, The word incarnation is a word... Here's what the incarnation really refers to. It refers to the humanity of Jesus. It might surprise you that in the first four centuries of Christianity, people didn't have a whole lot of trouble with Jesus' divinity. They had a lot of trouble with his humanity. And so we were dealing with the, the issue all the time of saying, what is the relationship between these two things? And the term incarnation is a lat, comes from a Latin term, which means in the flesh, Or as Robert Cooper, my morals and ethics professor at Neshota House said, if you translate it very literally, it means in the meat. So it's trying to be explicit about uh, what we mean when we speak about this. 
And we're moving now for the next three, two weeks in Advent and then into Christmas on a deep focus uh, on the centrality and importance of the Incarnation. Episcopalians focus on the humanity of Christ as being central to our self-understanding as Christians. Some other Christians refer to uh, the Incarnation or the doctrine of the Incarnation as the Anglican heresy because we uh, perhaps overemphasize this in a way that is uh, not appealing to some. In 1850-something or 1860, one of the pre-Raphaelite painters in England, I think it was Holman Hunt, painted a picture that was a picture of Jesus in the workshop with his father Joseph and his sister, one of his sisters, working on carpentry stuff. And he was in there as a boy. When the painting was, re was re uh, released and was now in a gallery, the critical press, the art critics, published scathing reviews of this painting as being a triumph of impiety or impi impiousness Right? How dare would somebody paint Jesus in that domestic human scene? After all, he's the son of God. And so I, my question would be, why are these two things mutually exclusive? But when you tend to still believe <clears throat> Jesus, I think there's still a lot of Christians who think Jesus was like a lot of the early uh, post-New Testament Christians who believed that if you were with him, you, you could put your hand through him. That he was like a pointillist painting. You know? So he looked like Surat, you know, so you could just do that. And it wasn't really him. He was just sort of a, a, a wraith, a spiritual image, and not physical. So the incarnation is about the importance of, of that issue that we affirm the humanity of Jesus. The final solution to this, whether you can follow it, you can. when the sermon's boring in church, you can take out the Book of Common Prayer and look up the Chalcedonian definition of the relationship between the humanity and divinity of Jesus in 451 A.D. It's in the back of the prayer book under historical documents of the Episcopal Church. And so it's a paragraph explaining how at that council, uh, the last of the, of the four ecumenical councils, how they thought about the relationship between Jesus' humanity and divinity. That for Jesus, his humanity and divinity were like the DNA helix. Right? So you can't separate them out. So it, it, a lot of people don't like this idea because they think it impinges on the sovereignty of God. Jesus' divinity is such that he was also a human being. So if we were able to transport ourselves in the time machine back to first century Palestine and go up to him and ask him what, what he thought about the space program in the United States in the last 35 years, he wouldn't have a clue. He wouldn't know what you were talking about. He wouldn't know what a space capsule is. You know? And some people find that scandalous. But if you take the Chalcedonian definition seriously, you can understand what we're talking about in terms of the relationship between Jesus' humanity and divinity. 
So John the Baptist arrives on the scene, and he sounds like he's in a mood. (laughs) Right? He's not happy. And he's talking about the need for repentance, and he's speaking about the judgment of, of God on the people, particularly the religious leadership of his time. And in his prophetic speaking, he's, you know, takes no prisoners. Last week I talked about coming to this Sunday about John the Baptist and said that uh, repentance is one of the things, uh, one of the themes of the season of Advent. And we are creatures of our historical uh, circumstance as Western Christians. So for 1,400 years, we read a Bible in the West for 1,400 years that was in Latin. And it was translated from the original languages, Greek and Hebrew, by Jerome, who was a brilliant biblical scholar and apparently impossible to live with. (laughs) So if you go to Matthew, to this passage in Matthew, John the Baptist is telling everyone in English to repent. And Jerome translates from the Greek into Latin, and he says, penitentium agite, do penance. Do penance. So for 1,400 years, that's what we thought repent meant. It meant do penance. So we get into uh, some other people back then, but also Luther shows up now in the Reformation, and he looks at the Greek text. And it says, metatoiete, repent. And he goes, gee, for 1,400 years we've been doing penance on our knees with an armload of gladiolas. And maybe it wasn't something that we needed to do all the time. Maybe we needed to look at our life in another way. Maybe we needed to see how we understand that. You know, I harp on this original languages business, and I know nobody's going to pay much attention about trying to learn them. There's no real need. We have a Bible that we use in the Episcopal Church called the New Revised Standard Version, which is probably the finest English translation. There are others that are real good, too, but that one is really good, and it is a very faithful translation into English from the original languages. But it's important to harp, particularly with people who who are very literal in their views, that the Bible was not written in English, you know. It's like at St. Michael's in Tucson. I had someone come out the door one day. It was right in the middle of all the liturgical changes in the Episcopal Church, and she said, Father Brewer, if our Lord knew what you were doing to his prayer book, he would turn over in his grave. Herb Cain, the columnist in San Francisco for years, used to refer to that as unclear on the concept. (laughs) So John the Baptist is telling people that they need to repent. So one of the ways that we can understand this is taking a look at our life in a new way. There are two words in the Greek New Testament that say repent. Metanoia, which metanoiete comes from. And another word called epistrophe, which we get from Plato. And Plato says, 
this is the process that you go through to learn philosophy to become a better human being. So we translate that word conversion because that's a reasonable translation of that. So metanoia involves an internal process of looking carefully at your emotional, spiritual, and mental states, changing the direction you're looking for happiness, and then not only make the internal resolve, which is metanoia, but physically put it in your hands and, and, and make an election, if you will, not to sound like a Jesuit, but make an election uh, that you're going to make some changes in your life. And these are the things that you're going to do. So you put it in your hands and you make it real. So John the Baptist was speaking about the importance of repentance and also the difficulty, the judgment that has and will be visited on the people for their uh, lack of desire to do this or their, to change. But here's the thing we need to understand when we read these passages in the Bible. Most of us come to our religious uh, understanding or yearning as a personal subjective undertaking. And my own personal opinion is, is that we got that from the Reformation, that this was about me changing, right? Accepting uh, the converting power of God, the cross, Jesus, however you want to speak about that. And that's certainly not unimportant. unimportant. But when John the Baptist spoke, he came from a culture that did not think about himself first, so the call to repentance was a corporate call. It was a call that was to say to the, to the people, the people of the covenant, look and consult your sacred literature. If you looked at Isaiah the prophet and read him with a certain view, you would discover that these things have been part of our self-understanding from the jump. And what we're talking about is the need for there to be changes in our corporate relationship with one another. So the first idea was we, not me. How are we going to come to terms with this? And I don't need to remind you that it appears at the present time, and I think this is a cyclical thing in our own culture, uh, people are pretty me-focused and not particularly we-focused. And so they think about uh, public policy and a variety of other things from the standpoint of how it's going to affect me or I, it's my way or the highway, and as a result of that, we're just doing nothing, right? And John the Baptist was speaking in a way that he wished to uh, make some forward progress. So the gospel writers portray him in a pretty similar fashion. Luke, probably more than uh, Mark or Matthew, speak of John the Baptist in such a way as to make him the culmination of what we would call as Christian people the prophecy of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. He would embody in himself all of the prophetic uh, utterances uh, that came before him. So he is in the readings from Advent every year because it's a reminder of the corporate nature of repentance and its importance. And he's also in the readings because it reminds us that he was one of the people that allowed those who heard and followed Jesus subsequent to his baptism at the hands of John the Baptist, that he was moving in a direction that they had uh, been hoping for for a long, long time. 
the messianic hopes of the people of Israel. So they were able then to understand Jesus in depth. If you are engaged in some discipline or profession or work life where you've had to master a certain discipline of how it is that you things are done in this particular area, you need to learn about that. You come to a point where all of a sudden you understand it in depth. I didn't know how to read before I went to school. Some people... But I, by the time I was in the second grade, I remember as clear as a bell one day that it, I had broken the code. I had broken the code. And I understood now how to read in depth. Right? So the same thing is true about the events of history that we all live in, you know. And John the Baptist is pointing us to that. Now, let me say a word about the, uh, the, the judgment of God and uh, a point of view about uh, judgment. There are two views about this. One is that uh, God's judgment is a... When God's judgment and God's mercy collide, God's mercy trumps God's judgment. There's a lot of theological stuff that would support that. Some would say the whole thing we have to understand is that the reason for the incarnation, on the other hand, is that uh, God needed to become a human being in order to redeem a sinful humanity who was totally reprobate and not able to do it themselves by any stretch of the imagination. And so this is what we had to do to right the ship. I don't think, uh, to be frank, it's an either-or deal, but I prefer God's mercy as opposed to God's judgment. If you read the medieval theologians, the fame, St. Bonaventure, St. Thomas Aquinas, Abelard, all those people, uh, they spoke about this uh, uh, in, the, in the Middle Ages. And they call, in Latin, they called uh, God's judgment his opus alienum, his strange work. And they call his mercy his opus proprium, his proper work. And so the default position always was, this is how we think about these things. But remember, as I've said, John the Baptist is not talking about us first and then everybody. He's talking about the collective uh, community that's how he understood his own identity. He didn't understand it as me first. There's no way to get away from it because now we're all me first and, you know, there it is. By the way, uh, this is probably uh, inappropriate to say, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of Christians of a fairly conservative bent seem to think that uh, we're in an age that is highly individualistic that believes that uh, self-actualization is the highest moral good that you can achieve. I tend to agree with that to some degree. And that there are evil forces at work in the cosmos that produce this reality. And I think, certainly in Western culture, that radical individualism and me me meism came from a rather extreme evangelical Protestantism 
came to the United States during the time of the founding of the 13 colonies. And one of the people that I would name in this is Roger Williams of the Rhode Island Colony, who at the end of his life was a member of a church with one member, him. <laughs> there are many great things about Roger Williams. You know, he's the first guy that really developed in a very uh, uh, interesting way the whole idea of the, the separation of church and state and the right of everybody to choose their own spiritual path. He's, considered, he's held in high regard for some of that. But he also uh, believed in a, in a sort of radical individualism, which in the end tends not to uh, build up, but to tear down. Have you ever noticed that a lot of schismatic groups, groups that split, keep splitting? Right? They split over whether you should use the King James Bible only, uh, in our, whether you should uh, use the 1928 prayer book, whether you should have women bishops and priests, whether you should do all of these sorts of things, divide, 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 right? Instead of thinking about we're all here together, and we may not all agree, but um, we, we, we do it better together than we do it apart, and I still believe that, that that's important. Every morning when I get up, or maybe sometimes when I'm still lying in bed coming to myself, uh, I do. I use a spiritual uh, system that comes from 17th century France, which was an era of absolute hair-raising piety for many people. But there were a group of people in France, uh, uh, clergy, who uh, became ultimately primarily uh, seminary professors. They're called the Sulpicians. They still uh, exist. There's a church in Paris called Saint-Sulpice. One of the great Sulpicians in this country was Father Raymond Brown, who was perhaps the finest Roman Catholic New Testament scholar in the 20th century. There's something in terms of uh, different ways of praying called the Sulpician method. You know, it's like the Ignatian method from St. Ignatius Loyola or the other various ways of, of uh, saying your prayers in a systematic sense. And basically, without doing too much injustice to this, it's, it, it goes like this. Jesus before my eyes in adoration. Jesus in my heart in communion. And Jesus in my hands in cooperation. So normally, that conclusion is the result of a reflection. Some people call it a meditation about something. And at the end of a meditation, you make a resolve. You decide, what is it that I'm going to do with this reflection I've had today, and how am I going to do it? So it's Jesus before my eyes in adoration, Jesus in my heart in communion, and Jesus in my hands in cooperation, which is, how do I do this, and what did I decide to do? about something in my life, about something that I, that I want to do, about, um, you know, strengthening my vocation in one form or another. During the same period as the Sulpician method in Paris, there was a bishop in Geneva, Switzerland, in the early part of the 17th century, named St. Francis de Sales. And St. Francis de Sales uh, wrote a little book called the introduction to the devout life. 
and it was written for noble women, French noble women. And it was a way of teaching them uh, the spiritual life, how to say their prayers. So in there is his view about how to make a meditation, how to do some stuff very similar to the Sulpician method. But he told all the ladies that what they needed to do at the end of their meditation was to gather a spiritual nosegay which is a little bouquet of flowers that you put together from your garden, right? So as you're walking in the garden, you have your spiritual nosegay and then you can take it wherever you want. And if you've made some form of a resolution, uh, sniff the, the, the nosegay as a reminder of what it was that you decided you were going to do. The spiritual nosegay. So Jesus in my hands in cooperation is a, also involves some sort of a, a reminder about how, the, how you might do this, you know, rather than just acknowledge the general, uh, you know, our general wretchedness. Think about uh, that God needs each one of us to fulfill his purposes for the cosmos. And so uh, on a day, daily basis, not just with the big grand things, but with the small things, uh, I have some intention about what it is that I'm going to do. And I find the way to remind myself to do this. So this week, pray that this Advent will allow you to keep Jesus before your eyes, in your heart, and in your hands, in all that you do. Amen.